Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. It's another tribute episode this week as we are joined by Wrestling Observer Live's Mike Simbravivi to talk about the life and career of the Russian bear Ivan Koloff, George the Animal Steel, some brief talk about Bruiser Bob Sweetan, and the end of the show with a bunch of hockey talk, both this season and ways we think the game could improve to attract new fans. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm ready for a match with the Russian bear. Gonna pile, drive it, pull his hair. I might have a foreign off in my trunks. I might have to use on that pump. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. It was another tough week for old school wrestling fans, as there were a number of longtime veterans who passed away in the last few weeks. To discuss their careers and some other stuff, we welcome back to the show... Mike Sempervivi from Wrestling Observer Live. How's it going, Mike? It's going great, man. What's happening? Not much. Uh, we were just talking about, before we started, the crazy weather that we've been having in the Mid-Atlantic here, where it's been 70-something degrees this week. Although, apparently today, after these thunderstorms go through, we're going to have a 30 or 40 temperature drop from the mid-70s this afternoon to 30s overnight. So it's like, welcome to spring, I guess. I was say, Punxsutawney Phil Kessel didn't see his shadow when they they ripped him out of the the ground there. So <laughs> I guess I guess maybe we're 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 aiming towards something good here. Although I'm a little nervous to actually go full bore into that, just because saw what happened in Nebraska and Minnesota in the last couple of days where they got killed with snow. So I'm sure we're still due for one real nasty cold spell. And the way things usually go over here, it'll probably happen right on opening day. First pitch, in fact. I, I jokingly told somebody at work, I said, I wouldn't be surprised if we got snow in May this year. Because, you know, we've barely had anything. We had that dusting a couple of weeks ago that we were supposed to get four or five inches. It's, you know, nowhere like last year when we had that blizzard. So it's just, you never know the way things are these days. But, uh... Yeah, so we had a bunch of more wrestling deaths. Well, on the last pod, uh, Matt and I talked about Chavo Guerrero passing away. And we've had probably some even bigger stars uh, pass away after that, including, I guess, starting with Ivan Koloff. Yeah, um, you know, I, I don't have a – we won't do Tony Kornheiser old guy radio, but – we're some old guys, <laughs> and there's a lot of you listening that are probably in our bracket of age between 35 and 54. We tend to be the strongest, most ardent professional wrestling supporters. We lived through three boom periods. We lived through Hulkamania. We lived through the Attitude Era, and we lived through the uh, Cena years and the, the, the transition that WWE in a lot of ways has gone through. So we've lived through these three periods, but we, a lot of us always have a, a special place for those guys who we came up with. And this is just people we came up with that you can't stop time. It's, uh, it hurts, you know, cause you, you don't, you don't want to see it. And it's not just this. We saw it in 2016 with a lot of musicians too. And we're seeing it now with wrestlers, Chavo Guerrero, uh, Ivan Koloff, all of these guys that, that did at least touch me growing up as a wrestling fan. And, you know, Ivan was one of those guys that I have such respect for Ivan Koloff. I'm, you know, you look at his career on paper, and, and even if you're a 
a hardcore historian that that really truly understands the impact that Ivan had uh, throughout the years in, in different places and overall on the wrestling business and how it's very difficult to tell the story of pro wrestling in some ways without the name Ivan Koloff popping up and appearing. Sure, some other people could have uh, taken his place at certain times, but you can't really tell the story without him uh, because of the big things that he was involved in. And, you know, his passing, it's its tough. And when you would speak to the guy, he, he was never bitter. At least I, I never heard him be bitter. He was always, he kind of just, talk about a guy who took personal responsibility. You know, for, you hear the stories of how he would say how wrecked he would get and some of the, the dark places that he would, would go internally but then you talk to people who they never saw that out of Ivan. He didn't give that impression. Now, granted, like Bruno, there were times where since faces were not traveling with the heels, they didn't know the extent of, of Ivan's partying and how much he used to get it in. But I think the real mark of, of Ivan's professionalism is the fact that nobody's got too many stories out of the locker room like that or him working inebriated or screwed up. And even if he did... He never let that off to the people that he was working with, which, you know, you hear all of these horror stories in wrestling and about guys being unable to perform and in the ring and in positions where they shouldn't have been or they're bringing them. You know, they are literally bringing guys in rolled up in a in a carpet into the TV studio and I'm rolling them because, you know, they only pass out about a half hour before they were supposed to do taping and things like that. You don't hear that out of Ivan. You know, I guess. I guess you could say he was a he was a functional addict. Um, I guess to the to to the biggest extent. But the thing I just always got out of him was like he was always he always was a smiley, happy, cheery guy that didn't put it on anybody else. He put it on himself, and in some ways, almost kind of kind of even blew it off a little bit of just like made these mistakes. And I knew I had you know I had to hit rock bottom and finding God and all that sort of stuff. It just it. it I was always just really impressed because it, it's you always have some trepidation when you when you talk to older guys, especially for the first time. You don't know how you're supposed to take them, you, you know, and there's some guys who are nicer than others. And but Ivan was I, I can't uh, maybe somebody's out there's got something bad to say about Ivan, but it's certainly not going to come from me, uh, not from outside the ring or on the phone talking to him and, and certainly not inside the ring where the credentials are without pure to, to be honest i mean it, it's just dave Meltzer did a an incredible job writing him up in the wrestling observer newsletter in the bio this week and i think there's going to be a generation of people that actually now hopefully hopefully or generation of readers at least who really have it in their head of how powerful and strong and successful a figure that ivan koloff really was yeah i haven't got to read uh Dave's a bit yet, so I'll look forward to that sometime next week since I'm a I'm a print subscriber. But obviously, people it's I guess, still not there yet. <laughs> I I got last week's last week's came yesterday because I guess between the holiday and whatever. So, huh. if I'm if I'm lucky, they come on Mondays. <laughs> Usually, it's Tuesday or Wednesday. So, 
you know, especially when it's, you know, it's when they're when Dave's obits, you know, you can wait for them because you know how good they're going to be. It's just, you know, it's probably unfortunate he's had so many the last couple weeks. He's probably going to start getting behind and bogged down because I know there's still, I think there's obits left over from a couple years ago that like burn. Yeah, that like never got finished, and you know it was a sort of a running gag for a while. But I know, you know, people, you know, to slightly digress. I know some people are are like annoyed that, you know, we don't have the awards yet, and it's like, you know, when news keeps happening, it's like, you know, the yeah. awards the awards can wait because they're they're uh, they're evergreen. Once they're done, they're done. You know, and they go on the list, and they're always there. It's just you know, whenever you get to them, you get to them, and. You know, between all these all these deaths and you know just the regular business, and there's a pay per view twice a month and UFC and yada yada yada. So I always just figure, you know, it comes when it comes. You know, I just hope, you know, I remember that one year where he broke it up and he did like a couple categories every week, and I think nobody really liked that. So yeah. I'm I'm happy just to wait for the big one whenever it comes, you know, if, it does, if, it's, if it's after WrestleMania, it's after WrestleMania, no big deal. Yeah. I don't, I don't care. You know, that's one where I just, I just, it doesn't, I get it, but it doesn't really affect me all that. I mean, the, the hall of fame is far more important to me. And these obits are just because like you said, nobody does them like Dave, you know, and if hey, they're just, nobody does them like Dave, nobody takes them as seriously. Nobody's got the, the grasp and the understanding, and there's other guys that you know. It's not like Greg Oliver couldn't do it. It's not like there's not other guys out there that 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 couldn't do good ones. But it's just Dave just does the best, and that you know, as a historian, as a as an older fan, as somebody that looks towards the past just as much as they look towards the future, but but is is rooted in the past. That stuff's really important because if it wasn't for Dave, yeah, some other guys could do it, and they and some people do do it and do a good job, but nobody, you know, could anybody have really written this one like Dave, the the one about Ivan? I doubt it. You know, maybe they could, but it's just once you see it, you'll you'll be blown away by it. And, I, and you know, I did laugh. You know, I still print out the damn thing. A lot of times, I will break it up myself. Like I printed out the Ivan and. And George Steele and, and the, the the bios that were in this one, and I printed it out and read it because that's what I am. I'm old, and I still like newspapers and, and books and print and stuff like that. It's just it's one of those things. I know I need to transition because I'm killing the environment and all that sort of stuff, and I got all these gimmicks in you know, the iPad and everything. I could read it on, but damn it, it's so tough. <laughs> it is so incredibly tough, and there's a, a paragraph in there. And just for anybody out there who's like, man, I heard a lot about it. Ivan this week kind of rolling their eyes and don't really know. Here's just uh, this is one paragraph from it that I'll read very quickly because it's a, basically a bunch of names, but just to drive home the point uh, of Ivan. Koloff headlined everywhere he went for more than two decades, working with almost all of the top baby faces of the late 60s, 70s, and early 80s, like Dusty Rhodes, Vern Gagne, The Crusher, Bruno San Martino, Ric Flair, Blackjack Mulligan, Mil Mascaris. Dick the Bruiser, Wahoo McDaniel, the Road Warriors, Andre the Giant, Mr. Wrestling 2, the Rock and Roll Express, Whipper Billy Watson, Billy Robinson, Bob Backlund, Edward Carpentier, the Rougeos, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood, Jack Briscoe, Giant Baba, Antonio Inoki, and countless others. It's kind of running the gamut there. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just it's an incredible amount of people and an incredible amount of time on top, no matter where he went from Australia to Georgia. Yeah, uh, I guess he's 
best known, I guess, now because he was chosen by Vince Sr. to be the person to finally beat Bruno after Bruno's eight eight years as WWF champion. I mean, even though you know it was only he only had a short time with the title, the fact that he was the one chosen to beat Bruno is like almost all you need to know about him. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And then you, you like you, you go well, you know, if you look at it on paper, and it's like, and you don't know, and you're not from you know the the mid '80s and before that, you say, okay, Ivan three weeks, uh, Stan Stasiak a week or whatever it was, and, and you look at Reigns like that, and you blow it off like psh, transition, you know, whatever it was, and then you find out like, no, Bruno really liked this guy, <laughs> like Bruno finding out, you know was upset that they didn't get the mileage out of Ivan and how big he was and how big of a deal it was for Bruno to lose. But then you, you hear that, well, one of the reasons why is the heat was so bad or they were so concerned with the heat <laughs> that because he was, it was such a, a, a catastrophic event in the, in the minds and in the, the hearts of so many pro wrestling fans that they had to get him out of there because they were afraid he'd get killed, and people may chuckle at that, but you got to remember, Blackjack Mulligan uh, was stabbed, if I'm not mistaken, against Pedro. Zabisco was stabbed. Ole Anderson was stabbed with, with pig fat on the knife. I mean, it's not like this stuff didn't happen in cities where they actually thought this dude was going to die. And on top of the fact that I am sure that there were fans of Bruno's, possibly... Of, of, of Mediterranean descent, maybe even from the same country that Bruno came from, that maybe could have been organized and, and wanted to, to possibly get some revenge for for a, a person that they considered a comrade as well, too. Uh, I'm not going to say anything anymore about that, but you did have to worry about that at times, too, because there have been stories where, you know, guys would come up to Bruno and things like that of you want do you want us to help you out or take care of something <laughs> you know which is a again a bizarre thing to think about considering it was what only around 40 years ago or so but it is it is true yeah but that reminds me of the story about you know Tracy Smothers and Smoky Mountain being oh god yes being yeah. uh approached by uh people in the south who have been known to organize to do things is gray if, supporters or what would be a <laughs> if uh, I was gonna say if a certain film by Cecil B. DeMille comes to mind, um, that if he needed help against Tony Anthony and the uh, the heels, that they had his back. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh. So you know, and that's that's twenty five years after, you know, the stuff with with Bruno and Ivan. So you know, there's. I guess it's one of those things that there's another thing that always runs through the history of wrestling. It's like when, you know, when a large percentage of your business is built on xenophobia, you yeah. know, that kind of stuff shouldn't be a surprise. And, you know, I guess probably in hindsight, Ivan is, you know, the number one Russian heel probably in wrestling history. I think it's probably safe to say. Oh, yeah. You know, and you consider how long the Cold War lasted, and I guess, you know, we may or may not have, you know, I guess, you know, Rusev and Lana sort of revived the, the gimmick on a certain level, and given our current climate, who knows what kind of <laughs> heels may 
may develop. But uh, yeah, what happens, Mark. I mean, think about it. He he beats you know all of this Red Scare going into, and he beats. It's not like this was the you know the fifties. It was the early seventies. He beats Bruno, and then you know. <laughs> The angle that you named the magazine after, yes. you know, Ivan, people forget that Ivan was, he wasn't, well, yeah, you could say he was front and center with that because it was the Koloff's flag that Eddie Gilbert, you know, and Pietroff or whatever it was, I can't remember who else was involved that helped lay that flag over the, the lifeless body of Bill Watts. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's stretched for a long time. Well, and I was looking at stuff. You know, like the stuff that Ivan was involved in that I know off the top of my head, you know, it's Bruno, and then you got the stuff in, with the Crockett's and everything like that. And, of course, my fondness for the the Russian flag angle. But then it's like, oh, yeah, Ivan was part of the Ole Anderson turn. Oh, you yeah. You know, he was, the, he was the sixth, he was realistically the sixth person in the cage. You know, but there he's right, he's front and center in that, and he's one of those people that, you know, if you look on that, there. You know, there's a bunch of that stuff on YouTube uh, after, you know, the, the big angle or the big turn, whatever they call it. The big turn of 1980, I think is what it's called now. You know, and, you know, there's there's Ivan gloating and talking about, you know, what a great plan Ole had. And, he, he, you know, he hated Dusty so much. And, you know, of course, Ivan and Ole were partners for a while. And, you know, it's 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 interesting to look at, like, the long series of of guys he tagged with over the years i mean a lot of them were you know equivalent foreign heels like he teamed with you know some of some of the other Russians. off yeah he teamed you know i i think i saw somewhere he teamed with volkov maybe in new york you know he teamed with the he teamed with the iron sheik occasionally probably teamed with the other sheik i would imagine on occasion and then you know and then and this is uh, in your wheelhouse, and then you get Ivan teaming with the first turncoat, Don Kernodal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is funny because I came, I started watching Crockett a little after, like, Nikita had already been there when I started watching, so Kernodal had turned face. But it's weird to think about, you know, that, especially in the Carolinas where you have the long time, long time Russian guy teaming with like a turncoat. And this is, you know, early Reagan America, you know, and this isn't even before Crusher got, this is before Crusher got there, but I would imagine Kernodal probably got super heat back then. I mean, cause he had oh already teamed, God. I mean, he had already teamed with Slaughter, you know, to the, and then the team teaming with Ivan. Yeah. And I was, you know, and I, I think I've said it on this show. I was such a huge steamboat and young blood, you know, steamboat and young blood and flair and that, you know, cause it was, that was exotic. I can't remember exactly what channel I, I started seeing mid Atlantic on. Uh, but it was like, you know, it was like revelation and, you know, Don Cronoodle, I mean, with the exception of a little bit of time when he was in the WWF with Ivan in, in 83, I mean, Every memory I have of Kernoodle was something that he was doing in Mid-Atlantic, and he was a, you know, so often a such a focal point of the programming, whether it be even playing the, you know, quote unquote second banana with with Sergeant Slaughter being the, you know, the other guy on that team, or being a a part of the team with uh, with, with Gary Hart, you know, with with uh, Bob Orton, you know, because after all that stuff ended, he and Slaughter couldn't team anymore. Uh, Slaughter ends up going to the WWF early on in 1984 and then it's Gary Hart who 
uh, Crew Noodle is hooked up with, and, and he and Bob Orton are the champions. And I, Orton, I, I guess Orton bolted. I can't remember exactly what the deal was when when Wahoo and uh, uh, Mark Youngblood won the titles. And I, I know that was a transition to get to the Briscoes because they had plans for Wahoo when Tully was coming in, and there was there was all this flux that was going on at the time when all this stuff was happening. But then. They do this deal with with Don Crunoodle that was it was different than everything else that I was seeing in wrestling at the time and following in the magazines. Because, again, for those people too in our area, in the mid-Atlantic, I know that there are people that will listen and go, well, the magazines weren't that important to us. At least for me in our area, I think that the, the magazines were so important because we got so many of them and we got them sooner because they would come down on the train than a lot of the rest of the country. We would get them. They wouldn't be you know, immediate. It wouldn't be like going to, to Grand Central Station in New York and getting like the newest magazines. But it wouldn't take too long before they were down on our new shelves in, in, the, in the D.C. area and in the Baltimore area. So I would follow through and you'd see these Russian angles all over the place. And you would see you know, the American that turned dirty, whether it be – you know, this is a bad example because you weren't supposed to know, but it was like Private Nelson becoming Boris Zukov and things like this where, where guys were turning on the country and, and walking away. Cronoodle didn't do that. And, and I thought that was kind of slick the way they did Ivan and Cronoodle was we want to be a team. Why do we have all this animus towards each other? Why should I hate my my, my fellow people? Yes, they didn't come to uh, we didn't go to their Olympics in 1980. But you know what? We should invite them over to ours. And we should be a team and we should be this is U.S. and USSR. We are superior athletes that are going to take over this whole thing. And it was awesome. And he was hated for it. And it was terrible. And as Nikita came in and as crucial in this this whole thing of like, you know, how can you work together with you? Because we're athletes. This is sports. It's supposed to be a unifying thing. And I thought the way they played that was awesome. But it wouldn't have been as good without Ivan in those promos of, you know, we're comrades and this and we're that until it finally, until they weren't and until they laid waste to him inside of that cage. And, and they, they pile drove Cronoodle, busted up his neck, you know, laid waste to him. And and wasn't long after that, obviously, Cronoodle was gone. You know, it, it did take uh, probably about another solid year before it was all over with by the time that that happened. Uh, you know, and he was completely out of there. But it was a great angle and it was a great bunch of tv that i don't think a lot of people i don't think a lot of people really know exists because 84 and early 85 is sort of i, don't, I shouldn't say early 85 but 84 definitely is a dead period for a lot of people when it comes to mid-atlantic pro wrestling 83 83 and 84 is they had some really good heights in 80 81 82 that i think get romanticized and then there's a little bit of a drop off in 83 and 84 which is it, it's, it was natural. It was going to happen. There were ebbs and flows. And you look back on some of the stuff, and it was still great, but it was a time of flux for them. So a lot of the TV and things like that, it gets forgotten about. It wasn't as exciting as, as, as Florida or some other places with some other things that may have been going on at the time. So if you have a chance to go back and watch it or if you have a chance to seek some of it out, it was really good programming, and it really was a damn good angle that culminated with the debut and the – not even the debut because he would already debuted, obviously, but the the ascension of Nikita Koloff from not just a third banana with this team, but to the guy that is this guy is now really scary and he's poised for something else. 
Well, I always thought, you know, as a teenager, yeah, it's like Nikita is was one of those like scariest guys because he had that crazy look in his eyes when he would, you know, especially when he would sickle guys. And you're just like, you know, this is not, you know, this is the kind of guy, you know, he's like in the the, the Steve Williams category of like guys you just don't want to mess with. No, no, they he would he part of that. And it wasn't exactly the same, but I know exactly what you mean. There was that that mid south, the the Gordy Williams, Hanson Brody, Road Warriors thing, where it's like, I know that this is a work, or I think I know that this is a work. You know, at that time at your age, it's like, okay, you know, you you get told that it's not real, and it's like, okay, but why would you want to put yourself through that against these guys? If, if you know, what 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 is this here? And Nikita would turn guys inside out, and he was—he didn't mean to do it, you know. It's kind of like, you know, well, Stan Hansen was blind; it wasn't his fault. He—he he would hammer guys in the way that he did. Nikita was just super green. But, but those guys—it shows you how good the enhancement was too at the time. With a lot of those guys, your your Joel Deaton's, your George Souths, your uh, Tony Zanes—you guys have been doing that stuff, Mike Jackson's for so long that they were so good at turning themselves inside out or, or making things look like they really hurt and. With Nikita being as green as he was, it probably did really hurt at the time. But you had those guys that really, they put him over the top. And there was that sense of like, this dude is scary real. And for me, I think part of that also came from the fact that if you would have told me, I, I never would have believed if you told me Ivan wasn't Russian. And it wasn't until years later I heard him speak and I almost I almost fell out of my chair. Because, you know, you've been listening to Ivan speak like this. And talk about Pat Patterson and all this for all of these years. And then you talk to Ivan. Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, I went and got my start against the Rougeaus and they were really nice. And I liked watching the Canadians play. And it's like, huh? <laughs> it's like, I honestly thought, and I think a lot of people did. He was so good at his role. I, people, I at least thought this dude was actually Russian or at least wasn't from here. I know gimmicks are gimmicks, but I would have never thought that he was not, you know, that he was from north america i never would have believed that which added such credibility to koloff it's like i don't think anybody grew up in the awa years saw sold out houston off and went man he's a russian and he really you know <laughs> it just and 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 that's gonna exude on to everybody else whereas with ivan and with those types of believable characters your fritz von erics i'm sure at his time or your baron von raschke's at his beginning and stuff like that where if you actually believe this dude is a foreign menace, you know what I mean? It actually, it helps everybody else. Well, the two things too, with Nikita that, you know, from that early era, it's like the, the dungeon training videos when he was going to fight flair in the bash were so great. Oh yeah. You know, and then you move on in the magazines too. Just sorry to jump in there real quick. The magazines that would do the stories, the worked stories of Nikita being summoned to the Ukraine, you know, because he failed. It's stuff like that helped. Uh, it, it, at least me, I know it was crappy, dramatic writing, or people make fun of it as pulp, you know, type of stuff. But it was great. I always say, I always say, this is one of my favorite ever PWI articles. We may have talked about this before. Is it's tangentially related to the Russians? Is there was an article where one of the one of the at the writers went to Thief River Falls to find out why Barry Darshaw turned his back on America. <laughs> and, like, you know, his teachers were like, well, you know, we always sort of knew something was wrong with him because 
he always questioned authority, and he did. And it was just, it's like one of my favorite articles because of how sort of thorough the the backstory kayfabe was for it. This <laughs> is so great. And I this is this one will not be as as amusing, but like <laughs> because of of the subject matter. But I don't know if you remember Stan Hansen's terrified wife, yes. and they did interview with Stan Hansen's wife and it was like oh my god he's coming home you got to get out of here he's going to come home and he's pissed off and it ends with like you hear the cowbell hit the door or whatever it was so it was just like I know this is bad romance crap you know if you're something like that in hindsight but at the time that you were in it as a six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve year old it was so great and it helped it was a great, you know, appendage, and it was a great, you know, accessory to what you were watching on TV. Well, my favorite, my favorite after Stan Hansen story was the one about he, how he actually had his own island in Japan where he raised Kobe beef. <laughs> yeah, I think I remember the yes, what did he like? Mas- somebody he had somebody that massaged him in beer or something like that. Yeah, so- but it's just. <laughs> But it's so great, you know. It's like the guy from, you know, Borger, Texas, raises his own beef in Japan because he doesn't like Japanese beef and he wants his own beef. And I was just like, brilliant! It just, I love. They were those things were. <laughs> the other, I was saying, the other weird thing about sort of the Russians and Crockett was, if you take sort of the whole sort of late Crockett, early Turner period, it's like, okay, you have. You know, Ivan and Kernodal doing this weird sort of glasnose thing. And then you have the Super Russians for a while. And then you get the thawing of the Cold War, which coincides sort of conveniently with Nikita's babyface turn after Magnum's accident. Yep. And then you have Murdoch come in as a redneck patriot who hates that Dusty's teaming with a Russian. Oh. So then he teams with Ivan. And so, so you just get a, this weird juxtaposition of people. I, I hate myself because I can't find the tape and it may be gone forever, but I had this one for the long, I had an audio tape. I used to audio because I'm a geek folks. I used to audio tape stuff off of wrestling. Uh, yes. Uh, that's how it will always bother me. It will always be stuck in my head that avalanche buzz Tyler used Footloose as theme music because I would hear that and then just want to break the tape. I hated Buzz <laughs> Tyler, but anyway. What, <laughs> I you had and, you and lots turn. of other people. <laughs> I had that turn of, of Murdoch where they were on Worldwide Wrestling. And the thing, I, I remember Cottle was speaking, which always makes me, well, was it pro? But the reality was it, I remember that red screen. And I had it on tape where there was a Worldwide where they did the turn on Dusty. And they are cutting the promo. And it's Dick Murdoch saying why he was, you know, why he had turned on Dusty. And it's got my comrades, Ivan Koloff, Vladimir Pietrov. And then Dusty comes out for revenge and he's backed up by Barry Windham and Ronnie Garvin, the U.S. Tag Team Champions. And you hear Dick Murdoch go, Ivan Koloff, Vladimir Pietrov, and oh no! And they brawl all over the set. I guess there was a time issue because the thing ends. You got Codlin Weaver kind of stumble back into the shot. They replay the thing all over again, including the promo where I just Dick Murdoch in that. Oh, no. And I can remember the look on his face where they all brawled around. It was so great. It was so great. And you know, the other thing, too, with like Nikita was remember Nikita went away after, unfortunately, his wife, Mandy had gotten cancer and I had passed and he was gone. And then he came back 
And he had, he looked different. He was obviously much more slimmed down. He had a big buzz cut, which was, you know, kind of a shocking thing. But then all of a sudden, he was from Lithuania because he had the breakaway uh, initial territories. And now all of a sudden, he he wasn't from uh, uh, anywhere in Russia or, the, or, or, or deep in the, the heart of Siberia or anything like that. He was from uh, Lithuania all of a sudden. So I remember which that was is, the... Which is funny because I think... I think they may have. Done, I think they did the same thing with with Volkov when Volkov turned face. I think he suddenly became from like Estonian or something. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, which would make sense. But and yeah, it's funny. And then you had that, and then you had they brought in the Russian assassins, and then they turned on Ivan, and then Ivan and Nikita had this sort of tearful reunion. And I know a couple of people have mentioned it this week of like how like emotionally that affected them, you know, as like young wrestling fans. See, and that's the one where I I have less of a memory than that. I, I remember Ivan Koloff and Al Perez kinda, you know, just that weird Gary Hart mix of people. Like I remember that. But it's I I remember Ivan I remember kind of those matches with the Russian assassins and, and Ivan and Paul Jones and stuff like that. But I, that one out of everything, if you, that's the one I probably would have forgotten about. If you said, you know, if, if I wouldn't have seen it like, Oh man, yeah, I forgot about that. That one didn't hit me as hard as some of the other stuff did. I, yeah, I was watching a bunch of this stuff on YouTube and then I guess he came back briefly in like 1990 for, after he had gone some other places after Turner, and he had like appear, he apparently had like one match on on one of the TBS shows, huh. and then he was gone, and it was just like, you know, and he was a heel again. But you know, according to like the notes on the YouTube match, this was like his one time back in 1990, and I'm like, I don't remember that, but I mean, you know, it's there. So I guess there's with Ivan, there's so much other stuff to remember. It's like one of my friend's favorite moments is when at the in the bash match when Flair is busted open and he's yelling at Ivan and he wipes the blood off his off his off his forehead and flicks it at Ivan. It's like one of my friend's favorite moments just because of how you know in hindsight what a horrible thing that is. But oh my god, yeah. But like in 1985, <laughs> it's a cool spot. Oh my, yeah, look, hey, I was at some of those, Ric Flair, and you can't tell me he didn't do it purposely. Ric Flair would be backed up into the corner, he'd have blood, you know, all over him, and he'd get chopped, he'd get hit something, and, you know, I don't, it was such a, you, you when you're a kid and you watch wrestling on TV, at least at that time, and I don't, God knows I have a kid, I should probably ask him about this, uh, but, you know, it's like, when you see the ring for the first time now, and granted, this was a different era. They had rings that would stay at places, but you go to the Baltimore Civic Center and or the D.C. Armory and you would go in. It's like the ring looks so small. And it was you find out later on. I think it, a lot of those rings were because they were you know, like house rings that would just stay there. But the ring is like so small. And you ended up, you were a lot closer if you were down towards the ring than I think you may expect it to, to have been. And Flair would get hit, and, and any of those guys, but especially Flair, because it was so dramatic. And, you know, the matches would go on for so long, you know, it, it was bound to happen where you'd get hit. And then he, the hair would whip back. And, of course, everybody would get soaked with blood. <laughs> and it's like, 
I, I remember initially having some pushback to them wanting to get rid of blood. You know, for me, it was like fighting in hockey. But, you know, when you stop and you really think about it, it's like you start like, no, we can't do this anymore because you are begging for a lawsuit and stuff like that. But it's like, I got blood on me. <laughs> you know, I got I got sweat on me. And the fact that these guys would come over and high five you and all this other stuff, too, afterwards. And it was like, yeah, you know, there for for a lot of reasons, this is probably we're probably in a little bit of a better place now with some of this stuff. Just and this is random, too, just so I could digress away too. one of the if my father was suffering from cancer and knew we, we kind of ended up knowing he was going to die. But towards the end of 87, we went to the WWF show that had Hogan and Bruno against Gang and Kamala. And if you would have asked me, was that, you know, what was the last uh, wrestling event you went to with your father? It would have been that one because I remember it so vividly. I remember, you know, getting yelled at. You know, it's like the, the, we're on the guardrail after reaching out and touching everybody. And we have the security guards are yelling, get down, sit down, sit down. And we're all, we're all sitting at the guardrail, all of us kids, like, what the hell are you, what are you talking about? And we turn around, all of our fathers are standing on chairs because they're watching Bruno. It was, like, it was so hilarious. It was like such a, we turned around, we looked at each other like, I'll be damned because everybody was standing on chairs. To, to, it was uh, it was incredible. But a month later, I think it was around a month later, we had actually went to what was basically the UWF show after Crockett had bought them, where it was. I remember Steve Williams had to run out. I'm trying to think of who it was now who was getting beaten down. It was Ivan Koloff, and they were beating down somebody with a chain. And Steve Williams, you know, ran out to to make the save, and it was like. Because I kept thinking, I was like, man, why do I remember that? And I had to look it up. It was actually after that WWF event. But I'll have to look it up and see exactly, you know, who was in the match and everything. But I just remember it was like, man, <laughs> I kind of forgot about that one, too, and being involved in, in, in that sort of stuff, too, where, you know, Ivan just, God, he was just, he was such a surprisingly integral part of my childhood, and I never even realized it. And I just, I remember that, that beatdown Almost more than anything, one of the things I really remember was the fact that, you know, the Russians are, are running to the back and Steve Williams uh, decided to, um, let's say, uh, shake his sack or to, to show that, that he had something down there and the Russians didn't, which was a, a jarring thing to see as a kid. I didn't need to see that, Dr. Death, but, <laughs> it was, you know, but it was just. I don't know. I you always romanticize your your youth when it comes to pro wrestling. At least I do, and it's true. I really believe that you know that line that that Dave and others will say that the best pro wrestling you ever saw is the one you saw when you were little. And I think I agree with that. You know, I could be more uh, critical about it as time has gone on if I needed to be. But if you you take to me back to and you ask what the your happiest safest space is when it comes to pro wrestling, man, it's got to be back when you were a kid. Well, it's funny they say the same. There is a saying in comics that the golden age of comics is eight. You know that that's another thing yeah. that you you know, it you know. And again, there's so so many parallels between comics and wrestling. But that's another one that, you know, things quote unquote you know were better when you were a kid than than they are I... now. I see it with my son because, you know, they're too young. You remember when they're tiny. They don't remember that shit. <laughs> you know, they can remember. And if they do remember anything from the time they're like three or four, a lot of it is obviously knee level. 
they can remember some conversations. They remember this. They remember that. They remember some big things because they remember looking up and seeing, but they don't really know. And I think when you get into that school age after kindergarten, they start becoming seven, eight, nine, ten. That is where, you know, their brains are basically fully formed now and they are taking in these things and, you know, they are retaining those good, happy things and those flashy things that, that, that excite them. So that, that is absolutely, I think, the truth. It's got to be where some of this stuff just really, it gets inside of you and just sticks in there. Now, it's funny that we're talking about Ivan Koloff, who worked all over the world and some, all of the big territories and was important to history. And you contrast that with George the Animal Steel, who, for the most part, really only worked in the in New York and, you know, the, the New York Territory for years and years and years. You know, I mean, he worked some in Detroit, since that's where he was from, and, you know, some places in Canada. But if you look sort of his history, it's almost all working for Vince or Vince Jr. Yeah, it is really – it's really weird, and, and that – and I didn't realize either. He, and I knew that he, he had worked in Pittsburgh for Bruno in, in that territory. But I didn't realize both of them were filtered through there to get to the WWF. Now, I, I can understand that because obviously it's Bruno and there were there were partners involved in in the Pittsburgh promotion that, that had a hand and there was a working relationship and all that sort of stuff. But I didn't realize how direct the impact was. And for like George Steele. And also both of them with Gary Hart at, at, at one point managed them in Detroit, a very, very extremely young Gary Hart, you know, managed both of them. But Steele is it's such a unique his story is so I guess it's not. It is unique. It is unique. Now, I, I shouldn't blow it off. You know, he's a guy who's a part time wrestler. He, he was a, a college football player, gets hurt, plays semi pro or plays minor league football for a, a new uh, place he becomes a teacher he becomes a wrestling coach and a high school football coach and then like for our age group it's like it's like learning the ropes he throws a mask on just like Lyle Zato did in that show and he's the teacher or the student and it's it's a play off his day job and he's out there and nobody knows it's him or supposedly nobody knows it's him and he's living this double life which is just incredible and then he, the mask comes off. He becomes the animal. And he's a, a guy that he's a very smart man that has got urges and instincts that make him freak out and lose it. And you never know who you're going to get. You never know when he's going to go off the rails. And you see this character that starts that way that evolves or devolves, depending on how you look at it, into the animal that we know of today. But through that path of being involved in being the guy that hurts Bruno that sets up Ivan. Being the guy that when Bruno and Pedro, they needed, you know, they, they had this angle. Well, we got the two biggest stars. We'll be able to do something with this. We can tease the tension. And then George Steele was the one that ran out there, stopped the match at Shea Stadium and took the heat and, and got Bruno, in, in you know, in theory, in wrestling terms, got Bruno and Pedro back together again because they looked at George Steele being an idiot and they looked at themselves and they hugged and they went, what are we doing? What are we doing? We, we have we, we have to unite and fight the, the, this this person. And there it goes. And he George never becomes a, you know, that big of a star as far as being in the main events or anything like that. But he lingers around there forever with a character that 
it, it there is where the whole characters matter thing. There's a great example of characters matter. Was not fun to watch in the ring. Could wrestle. Let's not make any mistake here. If they said we need you to wrestle on the mat, he could have. But that wasn't what it was about. It was about being George the Animal Steel. And it shows that if you're a professional and you have a gimmick like that and you work it to the the nth and you take it as seriously as you would take your mat and chain wrestling to sell that gimmick, you know, you're just as unstoppable as the great wrestler was, you know, and, and he had that. And again, the matches stunk and all that sort of stuff. But nobody remembers a George Steele match. Nobody cares about a George Steele match. They remember him picking up Elizabeth. They remember him ripping turnbuckles. They remember, you know, him dry, you know, him picking up Rick Bolton and separating, the, you know, doing the, the gimmick with the guy that he found where he pulls the guy's arm out of the socket with the hammer lock and all that stuff. That's what people remember. And that's a still, hey, no matter how you want to call it, that's a great legacy to have because you're going to be remembered forever. Yeah, it's. I saw somebody sort of draw the parallel that, you know, that there's like a generation of people who know Dusty as the guy in the polka dots. And, you know, there's people that only know George Steele as, you know, green tongue, mine, you know, whatever, whatever. Yeah, with Ivan, too. Uncle Ivan, that's all they know him as. But at least with Uncle Ivan, you know, he was still a serious worker and everything like that. You know, he didn't become a comedy character. And so, you know, you don't know about his 10, 15, you know, serious years or whatever. But, yeah, but is I'm sure it's also that kind of thing where, you know, if Steele got to, you know, work, you know, take less bumps, work less hard, but get more over, then that's sort of the key to the business on, on, a some, on some level. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just <laughs> – Again, may have been a lot of it was a lot of right place, right time, and right gimmick too. You know, it just was. I I think about because I I was a big Steve, obviously big Steamboat fan, and, and I really like Randy Savage, and he gets forgotten about in that feud, and you don't need him in theory, you don't necessarily need him in that feud, but while Steamboat was off. The roles that Bruno and George Steele played, especially when it came to George Steele and Elizabeth and that that they had going on kind of parallel, because that was one of the the things I always liked about older wrestling, too, especially like Crockett era was everything had an interweave like this person may not have liked this person, but they really didn't like that other person and that other person who they didn't really like didn't really like them, but they really hated that other person over here. And there was always kind of this weaving thing going on. And you know, you go back and you watch some of that stuff. And I did a little bit, you know, kind of after he had passed away. And it's like, you didn't need to have him in hindsight, but I, I kind of was sitting there watching it. And all these memories came rushing back of, I, it wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't have been the same. I know it was cornball in a lot of ways. And I know people think that his, his interference at WrestleMania three dragged it. And now bullshit. None of that bull. You know, that's all nonsense. I know it wasn't fine, you know, Steamboat and Flair, Chi-Town Rumble or whatever, you know, because George Steele may have been involved, but who cares? You know, it's still going to be just as memorable, and you couldn't. They were finishing off telling a story, and they were finishing off, you know, the, the culmination of this grander story with other characters that happened to be involved in this book. So it, it doesn't bother me. And again, it, it's one of those things that, 
looking back as you watch the thing all the way through, I you know it wouldn't have been the same without him. As corny as it may have been, or may people may have thought it was, it, it was still damn good. Yeah. The uh, the other person that apparently passed away, so the rumors say. I don't know if they've been confirmed yet or not. Is is Bruiser Bob Sweetan, who is n- not nearly on the level as the other two, but is a guy who was around in the seventies and eighties, and the only real exposure I ever remember seeing him as at the time was when Watts brought him in to drop the tag belts when DiBiase was in Japan. And that was like the first time I had ever heard of him. Like I saw him in the magazines and, you know, in hindsight, I realized, you know, he was there to sort of protect Doc and so Doc wouldn't lose the belts and Ted was gone. But, you know, you sort of look back and he had like, you know, a fairly decent journeyman career, although it appears that almost nobody liked him. And, uh, you know, he wrestled in the Southwest and in Kansas City and stuff like that. But, you know, it's still it's another guy from that era that's no longer with us. Yeah, um, good. Um, uh, I don't like Bob Sweetan. I'll just, I'll leave it there. Yeah. Uh, other, you know, I never got it. I, I'd go back and watch. I remember watching Southwest a little bit because it was on Fifty Four uh, out of Baltimore. Um, so I vaguely remember it on, but it wasn't really something. It was kind of dead and buried by the time I was heavy into it. And to go back and watch him and to go back and watch him, you know, the little bit you can find from, you know, when he was it's like him and Buck Robley and, and that era of of Watts and Mid-South and McGurk and Central States. I couldn't stand, you know, I saw him there. You know, there's there there's central states was hitting this you know actually more missed than anything you'd find a diamond in the rough every once in a while there match wise and stuff like that but it was always a you know very difficult for me to watch and i didn't see him in you know the the western of canada or anything like that and a little bit i saw of him you know i just i i never much cared for him i didn't much care for the character uh the style uh his interviews and any of that sort of stuff and then you find out about him as a person and what? It's Forget funny. about the outside the ring stuff. I mean, just the wrestlers talking about what he was like in the locker room is enough. It's funny that you sort of look at like the people who was around at that time, and it's generally speaking, people it seems like, and in retrospect, were not the world's greatest humanitarians. It's like Bob Sweeten, Bulldog Bob Brown, Killer Call Cox. It's like even even Murdoch. It's like these are not like guys you would invite to meet your mother over for dinner no no <laughs> they, they they most certainly uh were not and you know i it's it was it's amazing i was thinking about this my brother sent a thing as we record this today of i guess liston and ali was 53 years ago today and i think i was born in 76 and you know, I I'm not the the sixties, I always kinda of think of like post Kennedy's assassination to kinda of like where Vietnam ended, that ten year span is kinda of like how I consider like what we think of the sixties, you know, the revolutions and changes in Vietnam and this and that. And it's like, you know, I was only I was born right after that. And there you know, we talk about progress and this this don't worry, I won't get into anything that could be safe for other shows and things like that. It's like we're not all that far removed, even as we sit here in 2016, from some stuff, okay? 
and especially in the wrestling business. We're not far removed from some stuff. And there was a mentality in many parts of the wrestling business where they would guys would turn the other way. I don't care what you did. I don't care who you are. I don't want to deal with you outside of work. I don't want to see you. I don't want to travel with you. But we're all libertarians here as far as we're here to make money. This is a Wild West show, and that's it, and that's gone. This is not the good people business. This is the making money business. And frankly, it was one of the terrible parts of pro wrestling. There were benefits to it. I'm sure the Bill Watts will tell you about all of the benefits to it, of what it was like to be able to run your own show and do this and do that and all that stuff. But one of the negatives to it were a lot of bad people that uh, were able to flourish and be in the spotlight for a long time. And unfortunately, Bruiser Bob Sweetan was one of those people. And we'll leave that there. Uh, <laughs> Probably for the best. Right. No, it's just, it's funny. He's just, He was just always one of those people that, especially, you know, like in the mid 80s, it's like I would see his name in the magazines, you know, and I would see him in the rankings and stuff like that, but like I never saw him. You know, you know he worked yeah. places that weren't on TV. And so it's like, I know this guy from the magazines and. You know, there were a bunch of people from the mid-80s, like, you know, it was a long time before I ever got to see Lawler. I mean, you know, you know, here, you know, when you know, other than, like, maybe on Pro Wrestling USA, you know, I didn't get to see Memphis regularly yeah. until I went to college, and they were on FNN Score. Yes! Oh, man. That, same here. That was... That was the thing, too. And we didn't I remember at the time we didn't get FNN sorts. We'd have to go over. We didn't have cable. We had to go over to other people's houses or we'd go to like my if we travel, we go to my aunt's house or something like that. And it was like that block of programming. I I I could I got videotapes. I remember the rock and roll wrestling Memphis tape where it's like there's going to be a riot. Somebody's going to die tonight. They had like songs that would play to these old tapes of Bobby eating, eating dog food, and losing the, the dog food match and stuff like that. I'll, I'll put this up somewhere or I'll find it and send it to you so you can put it up in the link or something like that so people don't think I'm insane. But like outside of that and the magazines, I didn't know – I didn't see Memphis. I heard the stories of like Jerry Lawler on uh, on the Kaufman – you know, doing the Kaufman stuff. But it was it was a little bit before me and I just didn't get a chance to see it. So that was such a revelation to see things you only saw in those magazines like Portland – and Memphis and Puerto Rico and what was another one? Um, uh, Polynesian Pro, where you know we got so much in, in our area of being able to see all sorts of things, but we didn't get that stuff. And then that stuff was was handed to us on this platter, and he really got to sink in, you know, a lot more. And you know, for anybody that goes back, I don't know. I'm surprised. I get it in that you talk about times changing. You know, places where the blood and guts worked like an Amarillo or a Southwest Texas, where it was really about the believability of the tough guy. And it's amazing that Southwest was on USA, you know, for that year that it was on, because you go back and you watch and it doesn't hold up at all. And, and you ask yourself with Jaggers, with, with sweet tan, with, with even, I mean, Tully was good, but, but even then it was like, you know, it, it's amazing that this was the national TV promotion. This was the first national TV promotion. If you, you know, the, the, obviously, I take that back. There was Georgia too. You know, when cable blew up, but this was this was the second one, and it may have at that time with USA, you know, coming off the old Madison Square Garden channel, it may have actually had more reach and had more impact in some places than even to a point that TBS did. And it's like, 
man, Bob Sweet Tan was the, was one of the biggest stars on that promotion. And it just it, it's kind of it's head scratching if you think about it. And one of those things where it's like, how do you explain it? You, you don't other than, well, it was just the times and, and it was just that's the way it was. Yeah, I remember that a lot of guys that I only read about the first time I think I remember seeing them was like when PWI put out the Lords of the Ring tape. Because they had stuff yeah. from all over the country, and, you know, whether it was, like, music videos or just guys you'd never seen. And then even when when they started pro wrestling this week, you know, there were places that, you know, I think that might have been, like, the first time I had seen Continental, you know, or maybe Central. You know, I don't know if Central States was still around by then. I mean, it may have been, like, the Crockett Central States. Yeah, because that was on HTS for a little bit. Yeah, but, you know, they had, you know, and I think, I'm I'm pretty sure they had Portland clips. So that was probably the first time I saw Portland. So, it, you know, and again, it's funny, it's like now, you know, now we can watch just about everything we want at the, at the drop of the hat. You know, I'm, like, I'm finally getting to start on, like, the Death Valley Driver Portland stuff from the 80s, and it's just like... You know, I've seen, like, selected bits and pieces over the years of that stuff, but I've never, like, sat down to watch it sort of chronologically. Yeah. And, you know, and the same with, like, you know, all that Georgia stuff that Chris has put up or all that Memphis stuff. You know, and I think, you know, we've talked about this before. It's like, you know, for me, I'd rather, you know, if I have two hours to kill, it's like, do I want to watch, you know, Raw or do I want to watch like 1982 Georgia or 1983 World Class? Oh yeah, <laughs> I know. I I know what I'm picking, and you know, I mean, I marked out this week when, you know, they put out the 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 new download for the WWF game, and they've got the Freebirds and the Von Erics and this like the Sportatorium ring, you know, with the World Class banner and the ropes and everything, and I was just like. Yes, I'll buy. Yes, I'll buy this download for nine ninety nine because it's got the Freebirds and the Von Erichs in it. And okay, dude, it you sent that tape to me. I immediately went and I didn't download that yet, but I went in because it was like because uh, I'm gonna wait on on Avery to do it. But I went in. I I downloaded like the creations that people have made. You know, yeah. like with old Bell. I guess it's just like as soon as I saw it, and they came out, and it was like okay, because when I do actually play this and download it. I'm going to be probably doing this for hours. <laughs> yeah. The only bad part is that for some reason they don't have, they don't have Gordy. You have, they have Garvin, although they, unfortunately it's the Freebird. It's the, uh, it's the glam WCW yeah. Freebirds, but not gorgeous Jay. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, it's funny. They've got world-class Michael and buddy. But no Gordy, and then they've got WCW Hayes and Garvin. Yeah, that but, does stand out. I wonder why that is, but <laughs> I'm sure there. I'm sure it was like rights, or you know, like Gordy's family didn't sign his license image away, or whatever. And I just his wish, son still sees Doc Gallows on the roster yeah. and goes, "Come on, bring me back." <laughs> yeah, the only thing that was annoying is I wish they had like the alternate costume Jimmy Garvin. So he had his beard and he was in like his little white trunks with his, his like gold sequin jacket. And he's like, oh, we man, don't... The, the sequin pants and, and, and overall combo. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's you know it's i love that oh by the way the, that arena match i was talking about too it was dick murdoch and uh ivan koloff uh were were, were beating down somebody and now, now i'm gonna have to find and remember who that was but that's who it was and then steve williams came out and made the save because it led to the uwf title match between steve williams and dick murdoch so that that must have been what that one was if i if i recall correctly so <laughs> there, there you go oh, so that's nicely full circle um, yeah, so before we go, um, we have not had a chance to have our friend Jeff Merrick on the pod this year because he's been so busy with all of his other stuff. But I figured we would just get a couple minutes of hockey chat in uh, to say that we did. Um, we are a couple hours away from another outdoor game uh, for you and me between the hated Penguins and the hated Flyers. So I don't mm-hmm. necessarily know if I'm going to watch it, but your Rangers are clinging to the third playoff spot in the division right now. I know they've had, they had a hot beginning, but I guess they've kind of cooled off. So I guess they'll probably sneak their way into the playoffs. Which is, is par for the course. You know, I, they got off to a, they were better and stronger this year than they have been in past years. But the, you know, you're always going to get a swoon. And they got a swoon, and you knew things were going so well for them when people lost it with Lundqvist of like when and every goalie goes through a bad stretch. You know he was going through a horrible one of giving up four, five, six goals there for a little bit, and people thought the the world was coming to an end. If you're a Rangers fan, you know, back to the stuff, we've got Trey Lundquist and all this other nonsense and stuff like that. But, you know, they got off to such a great start. It was when things started to turn south, it was it was very jarring. But all the faith in the world in them again, this is like every year. They are, are they a championship team? They could be. You know, I, I didn't believe in Pittsburgh last year. And, I, you know, I, I should have after the, they made the coaching change and, you know, after the beginning of the year, they were on a good run, but we'll have to see what happens at the deadline. I mean, I'm pretty happy with the way the Rangers stand right now. I'm happy for the future because this is a different team than the past. They are obviously, you know, they're younger physically. They are, they see obviously, except for Lundquist and, and Dan Girardi, they seem fresher. You know, the, the younger guys are fresher and there's a, a curve that they have to go through where, I'm happy for the future, and I look forward to the future because it, this may not be their year. In fact, it probably won't be their year. But there's pieces in place where I feel good about the future, whereas in, in, in times in the past where it's like the Rangers are trying to win now and they've given away so much and you look at their draft. You know, I don't even know what they have for this year. I'm sure it's at best a second-round pick, maybe a third. I, I don't even know what they have left anymore because Sater has traded so much to try to, to you know, bring the thing home. This is the year we bring it home. And, you know, the, the irony of they've played so well this year at a time where it's like I think, at least for me as a fan, I, I thought the foot was kind of off the gas a little bit, and I didn't think this year was going to go as well as it did. And, you know, I think it feels right now the future feels pretty good. We'll have to see what happens with some of these restricted guys coming up, you know, in, in the future. But it feels good right now. <laughs> Oh, and I will say this, I still feel better as a Rangers fan right now being in the position I'm in going into the playoffs, and I would be as a Washington Capitals fan right now leading into the playoffs because, 
you know, teams like that, I don't think there's any pressure on the Rangers as far as nationally or anything like that goes until it gets to the brass tacks of them actually, you know, facing a Capitals or something like that in the playoffs. Because, I mean, to me, all of the heat is on a team, you know, especially in the East, like the Capitals. You know, all of the heat is on them because at, at what point, at what point do you start having to, to figure this thing out and, and make moves? You know, Pittsburgh, you know, they've got a pretty good balance, but they, I still see them as older. I don't think Columbus is going to hold on. And I don't think with Torts' style, you know, this may be a great year for them. I don't think it, it holds on. The Islanders, I'm not impressed with. Philadelphia is going through, you know, a, a big flux. New Jersey's in an even bigger flux right now. So when you look at that Metro division, Man, I feel good where I'm at right now. You know, I, I'm not scared of Montreal. I'm not scared of Toronto or Boston when it comes time to the playoffs. I mean, I don't necessarily want to see Montreal, especially playing at the Forum, you know, where they're just they're kicking a lot of ass. But, you know, I feel good about going into Washington. Now, I know Washington's kicked ass at Verizon, but you know what? I still feel more confident going in there. And face off against them because all the pressure's on Washington. You know, if he loses that series, uh, you know, it's going to hurt my feelings. The season's going to end, but, you know, almost oh well. But, you know, to me, all the pressure's on everybody else. It is funny, too, that it's such a weirdly lopsided conference in that, you know, the Rangers are third in the division and, like, right ahead of Columbus. And either of them would be in first place in the other division. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is like the, uh, oh God, was it the central? Oh God. What, which, oh man, it wasn't the, but I think it was the central a couple years ago where like, like almost everybody was underwater. It was like Chicago was doing well and Colorado was doing well. And then everybody else was kind of like the, the rest of the, the Pacific could have like been in the playoffs or something. It's like, it's kind of the same. It's like the, it's like basketball <laughs> in the NBA where it was like, you know, the worst team in the West could have beaten the third best team in the East by like 74 points. You know, it's it's, it's so, you know, bizarrely lopsided. ACC, you know, football would be like that for a long time, too, where you get your Maryland's, your Georgia Techs and, you know, this. And then it's like, you know, then there's truly everybody else at the, the bottom of the barrel. SEC, I guess, is like that, too, sometimes with Vanderbilt and stuff like that, where it's like there's a have and there's a have not. And there's really very little middle ground there. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, after decades of success, my Red Wings are 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 not only a have not; they're like not even they don't even have the not to have be the have not. It's like they are. I mean, admittedly, they're you know I think uh, you know they have the same number of points as Carolina, but still, it's you know they the fall so far, you know that you know their streak's finally going to be broken this year, but it's. You know, and then that coincides with Mike Gillich passing away, and it's like really is like this weird end of an era. So it's sort of, you know, turn the page, start the rebuild, and we'll see when how that When did Detroit goes. ever suck on special teams? You know, when's the last time you said, man, they suck on special teams? What You know, it's been, what, decades? I mean, it's like, that. it's just nothing, nothing's popping. Nothing's popping, but it, like, talked a little bit about before the show, it was like St. Louis and Chicago, you know, in the last 10 years where, you know, they had to, they had to literally bottom out. And I guess, you know, there are, are Jersey fans and I, there's definitely Flyers fans and you know this, that, that, you know, well, Flyers fans will just take out of the mix, but there's Jersey fans that say the same thing of like, you know, 
and there will be Pittsburgh fans that probably do the same, where at some point you just got to eat it, and you just have to not get too bitter about it as long as you feel as though the people that are running the team are taking everything in the right direction, and you just have to look back and look at your trophies and go, I don't want to pull too far away from these before I see another one again, which obviously is the thing in Philadelphia, and I'm sure is oftentimes the thing in Toronto where you have much more rabid, fanatical fan bases that Boston. I mean, Boston was a great example of this with getting rid of Julian where it's like, you know, is what are you, what exactly is going on here? And I know those fans I'm sure are probably, you know, feeling uneasy about what the future is going to be with their squad as well too, because I'm not, I, you know, again, and I'm more of a layman here than, than a lot of people, but I, I look at what takes place in Boston. I saw that move with, with getting rid of Julian. It's like, did you, do you really think that this is going to push you to a point where you can win the cup this year? Do you think this is going to get you to, to where you need to be? I, I, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I don't think it is, but then again, I guess, what do I know? Well, the thing with, the thing with Julian is also, you know, okay, I understand it's a time for a change, but it's such a weasel move to fire your coach, like right before the Patriots have their Super Bowl parade, well, so, the, that, so that yes. so that you bury the news. Yes, it's yes. like that. That's more indicative of the actual firing is like the weaselly way they did that. And the thing is, too, with hockey, it's it's so funny where. Look, they fire Claude Julian any day of the week. It is going to be big news in, in, in Boston. It's going to be on the pages. And But even hockey fans are hockey fans, especially the most vocal ones. You can't – you're going to hear it for something like that. So why not be – again, when you do it when you do it in that way – I mean, this isn't a politician that's trying to bury a story or this isn't something where it's a – you know, this is – it's not like people aren't going to pay attention to this, you know? It just didn't – if if the Raptors won the NBA title and they were going to have their parade and the Leafs tried to do something on the sly, you know, it's it's sorry, it's too big of a market. And Boston is too much of a hockey market where you can do something like that and not have it come off as slimy. I mean, I would rather just eat the, the slings and the arrows and the spit that I'm going to get and stand up there on that cross and say, give it to me, than do it in that way where you're going to get it anyway and you're going to look be looked at as complete weasels. That's my opinion, at least. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's also Jeremy Jacobs, so I can't. <laughs> you know, there was nobody like... happier than that too. The move comes down. Adam was doing backflips. Adam Summers was doing backflips of just like because he knew. And in hindsight, I should have. You know, I think we all should have known that that move was going to. Ha- as soon as it was announced that like the clock was going to be on in Montreal and they dropped what three or four straight before the move happened. And it was like, Oh, there we go. It's like, there's certain guys, you know, certain coaches are not going to be out of a job for, you know, it's like how often, especially like in the NFL, it's like guys get fired on black Monday and sometimes they're hired by the end of the week. Cause it's like, they just need to change the scenery. And when you've got, you know, when you've got a Francophone coach, that's been the coach of the Canadians before and has now has a Stanley cup, you know, yeah, that was not too much rocket science to see that was going to happen. No, (laughs) not at all. And it's not like they were playing awful, but they were, you know, you don't, you don't want to have that bad stretch at a time like that. And unfortunately they had a bad stretch at that time. And, and Julian's walked right in there and they 
again, the, they're, they're rolling. They, the patches is rolling. The whole team is rolling. So, which hurts my feelings. Well, we've certainly seen hockey is not, uh, is not a sport adverse to that. Cause when, what, which year did like Lou fire the fire, his coach right before the playoffs started, you know, when I think one of the times he brought in Larry Robinson, it was like three games before the playoffs or something like that. God, was it? I want to, I think so. I, it was, it was definitely right before, it may not have been right before the playoffs, but it was definitely like after the trade deadline and before the playoffs when he changed coaches. And it was just like, that's Lou for you. <laughs> he's he's going to, you know, take no quarter and not make any friends if it's going to help him win. I mean, you know, you look at, you know, what him and, Shanahan and Babcock have done in Toronto already, you know, and I think he's sort of happy to not be the guy in charge, but be the next guy down, but he's still running it the way he wants to run. You know, he's still, you know, still lose, lose rules. Trade deadlines coming up, which always makes me happy because it's always, you know, around or on my birthday. And it's, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, I, it is, I know it's only for hockey fans. I get such a kick out of that day. I, I don't, it's like, if you're a political junkie, it's like watching the, the ballots start, you know, the, the votes are getting tallied and rolling in at like 8 PM on, on that Tuesday night. And it's like the same thing. You, you turn on TSN at like eight in the morning trade center or, or serious NHL, uh, XM NHL channel, whatever it is, you're going to have on to, to pay attention to it. And it's like, you know, all day of like, I don't know. I, it's to me, it's such a underrated thing. And I know somebody's going, what a geek, you know, but it's like, if you're a, I'm sure this is like, if you're a big college, you know, uh, recruiting day and signing day and things like that. I just think NHL trade deadline day is so fun to me. And out of all of the sports with the exception, I think probably the first round of the NFL draft, there's that. Maybe the first couple of picks of the NBA draft, but as far as like drafts and trades and hot stove, I think of all four major sports, and I think of most sports, and you know, throw all of them in there. I it's I, the trade deadline to me is of all that sort of nonsense sort of stuff and the ancillary stuff. I think it's some of the most fun stuff out there. And it's funny that you know, knowing some of the guys that like work at Sportsnet now, it's. I mean, it is like it's their Christmas day, but it's funny how in the last couple of years, the big trades get done before draft day. So it's a lot of times it's them sitting around for eight hours going, well, we heard this rumor or we heard that rumor. It or, is. It's hot rumor day. <laughs> or I know, I know Merrick one year was like in charge of like the old GM room. And so he just basically got to listen to stories all day, you know, which made his day because that's what he loves. So let me yeah. ask you a question on the philosophy of this too, because trades getting, and I was thinking about this because it's like, you got an outdoor game, you got, or I'm sorry, you got a hockey day in America on the same weekend that you're doing, you have the NBA all-star game and you have the skills competition and you got everything else. And it's like, unless you're working in tandem with the NBA, this is a stupid idea. It, to me, at least. I mean, honestly, I know there is a separation somewhat of fan bases, but let's be very real here. The NHL needs a lot of the NBA's fan base. 
you know, and it's not the core NBA fan, but the kids and the, 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 the part, I mean, the, the average sports fan, the one to get sucked in. It's like, you need all those guys to me that you can get when it comes to hockey. And I think they made a bad move. And yeah, I wonder as you lead into the deadline, it's like, should they, I'm not saying shut it down, but work the schedule in such a way where you make sure that trades are going to be announced on that Tuesday or that Monday, whatever, you know, whatever day it's going to be. Do, do you try to, to do something where all of the focus can kind of be shifted on that day to what's going to happen? And this is almost like the, as soon as the trade deadline ends, it is the grand celebration of the push towards the end of the season. And I, I understand that that's, you know, obviously for a hockey fan, that's what it is, but there's, I, I, wonder if they should work on a way more and more to try to really make this the same way that they've made January 1st, the official kind of like the way basketball, the NBA doesn't really begin until Christmas. And for a lot of people, the NHL really doesn't begin until January 1st. Should they try to figure out a way, because we are at such a slow time in sports where we can try to manipulate this, this day and make it more and try to build it up to make it more where you got to watch because you never know what's going to happen. You never know where these guys are going to go. And then from here, it's you try to explode as much as you can to try to get towards the end of the year, even though you got a lot more year left. Well, I know Merrick has floated some of these crazy ideas in the past, some of which I think are, are clever. But one, like sort of in conjunction, one, that there's a trade freeze like three days before the trade deadline. I love that. And... His his great idea was put every but put all the GMs in the same room like it was the draft. <laughs> I don't know if I like that one. So, you know, so they're all there, and then you could actually see. I mean, yes, guys would be on the phone, but if suddenly, like, you saw Lou and Glenn Sather like walk off together and talk in the corner, you'd be like, Hey, what's going on here? You know, or stuff like that, that you would generate, you would sort of generate drama. You know, the problem, I like that idea because you can think about it. It's kind of like how the old NFL draft kind of was where, you know, the guys were there working the phones and everything. I just don't know if we'd get, I don't know if a guy like you, especially a guy like slats, it's like, you know, does he want that camera on him where I, Boy, if you could pull off something like that, I think it would make for fabulous TV. The but other, I think the other I, the other idea that people have said is, and this is more for the players' part, that trade deadline day should be a dark night. There should be no games. I agree with that too. So that one, you know, people can get around easier once they've been traded, and you don't get the really weird awkward thing sometimes where a guy is well one a guy is 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 like iced that day for no good for no good reason so you're like oh he must be on the trading block or the the even rarer example when a guy is playing and then he doesn't come out for the second period and you're like did he get hurt and they're like no yeah. they're like oh like he must be on the verge of being traded and they don't want him hurt so they pull him out of the game yeah, and there's the other thing where if you, again, you only have maybe one game or two games that you do, you know, the Saturday before it or something like that where you clear the schedule. So there's not, 
One, it builds the drama because you don't know what's going on. And, and the, the, the average fan has no clue what's going on. You don't know where a lot of things stand. And these guys, you don't have to worry about that because that's the other thing, too. With like, it comes to, it gets to be that night. And it's like guys are on their way to a team because nobody ever happens to be there and is ready to go. I mean, especially not anymore with, you know, there's a lot of, you know, people care more about these players' logistics now, <laughs> now than, than ever. And as well, they should uh, as well, too. But, you know, it's like teams take L's because of this. And you shouldn't, you know, with 82 games, and we talked about, you know, the, when does the season truly begin? But still, you know, you're you're offering a subpar product out there, too, when you have guys, when you're that shorthanded, or you're going to have guys that are moving. Why even bother with that? Give them a little bit more of the freedom and give them time and things like that, you know, around that, and then start up, you know, two days later. Sure, the, the bad part is you're probably going to have to cram some stuff together as far as back-to-backs and things like that, but, you know, I, I'm sure that there's a way they can do it. I mean, if there's the these guys who are scheduling masters are incredible at what they do to factor all that they can in, I'm, I'm sure it can be done. Well, now you have this weird thing, and I don't know if this is the first year where teams now have buys, I guess this is the first I remember of it where, like, you know, teams get, like, four or five days off in the middle of the season. And while that's good, it also means that the schedule ends up more compressed. So I know, like, with Toronto, they had their bye week, I think, like, in January sometimes. So they were off for a week, and then they were off again for four or five days for the All-Star break. And so after the All-Star break, they're basically playing like every other day for the rest of the season. And the season was shortened because of the World Cup. So well, that's, yeah. And that's that's where you do have problems logistically, too, because of the World Cup and Olympics and things like that. So and I'm the, still not sure how I feel about the World Cup. <laughs> I, I thought it was fine. I mean, if you're going to do it, and since they're probably not going to the Olympics this time then I guess it's, I'm glad they've sort of already brought it back. But I would, as much as uh, it turns out that the, the two made-up teams were like the two biggest stories, it's like I was not really a fan of Team Europe or the Young Guns. Yeah. It's like, just have real, you know, did the were the Young Guns more exciting than if they would have had Germany or Latvia or Norway be the 7th or 8th team? Yes. But also, those guys would have been on Team Canada or Team America. You know, and Team USA certainly could have used Austin Matthews and Jack Eichel and whoever else was on the U.S. team. But, you know, I've taken such a beating because of the – I've always been a political fan uh, my entire life. And, and you know, my a lot of hockey and NBA took a beating, unfortunately – a lot of fall sports are competing with everything that was going on leading into the elections and coming out of it. But it's like, so I don't know. My finger wasn't on the pulse of this, although I did. I did have some people who are very, very casual hockey fans or sports fans, but they're very casual, you know, perimeter hockey fans that there was market confusion. They didn't know what the thing was and they didn't really understand what it was. And it's like, well, you know, it's. I, they probably need to do, if they are going to continue to do it, a better job trying to explain what this is. And I guess there's a, a probably one side that goes, if, look, if you're not big into hockey, it won't matter anyway. But this is a sport that desperately needs American eyeballs. It, it does. It just it, it does. And I'm a hockey fan. 
So I want it to have American eyeballs and anything that's going to take away from that or muddy the waters is it's difficult, you know, because it's people. But, you know, well, the Olympics, you lose two weeks, you know, or whatever it is, you lose three weeks because of it. Yeah, but it's still that's still better, I think, for the overall sport, as annoying as it is for the NHL and for pure NHL fans. It's still better for the sport. You know, and I wonder if should more of the focus from the NHL come on, like exposing the, the world juniors, because I think that if people watch that and they see the excitement that goes into that because it is so rabid anytime people watch it, should they put more effort behind getting that out there to people to try to draw them in? Should they do more with you know, some of the colleges like Notre Dame's got their deal with NBC Sports and I think America East does as part of that deal. You know, should they do more as far as what's already existing on TV when it comes to colleges? Should they do that more? Should they concentrate on on the minors and, and the and, and the AHL All-Star game and, and those sorts of minor league games? You know, I, I, I wonder again, I know there's, you know, who am I to say being a layman? But it's like I, I do wonder after hearing some like confusion with that, should maybe maybe should they should just stick to what is existing out there already and try to get that into people's minds because I don't know if this innovation necessarily worked. Well, the weird thing about the World Cup is it was like their first time back on ESPN. And so part of it may have been, you know, like how how invested did ESP, was ESPN in, you know, did they were the games on the mothership? Were they on the Deuce, or did they get relegated to being streamed or on ESPNU well, or on let ESPN me ask News? you as a hockey fan? Be straight up. Did you watch it on ESPN or did you take a Canadian route? No, I uh, did not watch ESPN. That's a, I know a lot of people that didn't, and that's what makes me wonder about that too. Because if it comes down to brass tacks, and if given the opportunity, I would much rather. I mean, I listen to games on. You know, on TSN, and I listen to games on the radio because I'm a radio geek too, obviously. But you know, I would be more apt to do that than than check out ESPN. And I wonder how many hockey fans took that route as well too, because I know there's still a lot of bad feelings with some hockey fans in ESPN, and how ESPN people consider ESPN viewing hockey where it's, you know, it's Burnside and it's, um, uh, oh God, like, just like 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 on the LA coach, um, well, like, Jerry it, Melrose, and that's it. I was going to say, it's still, you know, it's still pretty much, you know, it's Bouchergrass and Barry Melrose, and that's it. It's that's like, it, yeah. It's almost like those guys are just kept on the payroll for, like, once or twice a month when, like, something related to hockey comes up. Is, is Steve Levy still there, right? Yeah. It's, so. Yeah, those three guys that do the entire NHL operation. <laughs> but, you know, I had heard from people that, you know – the ESPN production was not that great. And I don't know. It's because, you know, how many times a year do ESPN people shoot hockey? It's like, I, yeah. think, they, I think they still show the final four or the frozen four. That's not produced by them though. Is it? I don't um, think it is. You mean they just sort of take the feed and do the announcing? Well, I think it, it may be, it may be the NC. I, I don't know who actually, I'd actually have to look that up. I don't know exactly. Yeah. If they are, necessarily the producers of that telecast although I'll, I'll have to look it up and try to to find out but i i i am curious as to that see i almost think they would have been better off you know just taking you know taking you know, i assume maybe like they just use the rogers you know use the rogers feed and then have like their two announcers 
you know, doing the games. It's sort of, you know, it's it's like that with so many sports now, especially international sports. Where, and I guess ESPN is doing this more and more as a cost-saving measure where, you know, guys are doing play-by-play from Bristol, especially, you know, for like, you know, lower-level college basketball or college football. They're broadcasting from the studio, not from the game site. So, you know, they could they could have done that with – you know, the games are all in Toronto, so it's not, you know, and I'm sure, you know, yeah. Rogers is certainly, you know, got that covered, you know, or they could have just taken, you know, they could have just taken the Rogers feed and shown it on ESPN for all I know, you know, and just given, had their guys or just had alternate mic flags or whatever and done it that way. Yeah, that's, a, you know, I know a lot of the, uh, I just think about when it comes to like the, the wrestling and some of the other competitions where, you know, so many times it's just, it's somebody else doing it and they just kind of slap that on there. And I, I don't know, as you, again, as you go forward to it, just, you know, NASCAR season is starting up, you know, the, the NHL and even the, the NBA to a point where, you know, the NBA's bubble is going to burst uh, at some point when it comes to money uh, and it comes to what they kick out and pay and some of the TV rights and things like that. And there's going to be a market correction in general. The reason it keeps coming up now is because NASCAR season is just starting and they have a, you know, a billion dollar deal going on with Fox and with NBC right now where, you know, that that next time around for hockey, it's going to be interesting to see how the landscape of TV changes and how much money is put out there and set out there for you know, for what right now is still a fringe sport in America. And unless it really can do something to try to, to dig a, a dagger into trying to hold on to being the fourth or biggest, you know, fifth biggest sport in this country, you know, it bothers me because I'm a, just, I'm a hockey fan. And it's one of those things. If you can get somebody to go to the game, if you can get somebody in front of a 4K TV, you know, one of those super TVs, you know, big massive ones where it's just like kind of almost being at the game where you really – can feel it because once you go to a game to me you're sold you know and you may not watch it all the time but it's hard to not be a hockey fan if you go and see a halfway decent game a guy i work with went to a Cavs game a couple weeks ago and it was like his first his first hockey game and i was like i said he's like what should i know and i was like the most important thing is don't watch the puck I said the one one of the advantages you have of being there live is you get to see the whole field, and you can watch plays being set up, and you can watch guys without the puck do stuff. Yes, and yeah, you like, figure out what, you, what the plans are. Yeah, and if you just watch on TV, you're just watching the puck, and you don't. And this is like a he's uh, he's like a big soccer guy, you know, like he's play he played in college and he coaches and stuff like that. I said, I said, imagine. You know, if you were watching soccer and they only just showed the ball, I said, because, you know, they now like they do this with hockey sometimes. But like now they have soccer feeds where they use the tactical, you know, they use the end zone cam yeah, or the spider cam so you can watch things develop. And I said, it's a, I said, hockey's like that. And he when when I saw him like the next day or two, he's like, you were right. He said. You can appreciate everything a lot more when you can see everything. And I said, that's why hockey made leaps and bounds just when they brought in HD, because they changed the size of the screen and you can see more of the ice when guys are playing. And the fact that it's now HD and you can see the puck better. 
Well, that yeah, and I know a lot of people hated that glowing puck, and I'm not I'm not saying I was a big fan of it, but it was like at least they're trying to do something, especially at that time where, you know, it it, it was it's di- it was difficult to watch, and especially if you had a camera crew or a group that, you know, was thrown into the playoffs. It's like well, okay, you're gonna fill, and they don't know where they're shooting. Where hockey gave me more respect for soccer. I, I didn't play soccer growing up. I played other sports, including football, and it was like well, you know, soccer. It's like it's good for people without balance who can't skate and who just don't want tough enough for football or something like that. You know, as far as Americans go, the rest of the world, Hey, do what you want, but here, you know, soccer, really? But then watching hockey and seeing how things develop there, I actually got a better understanding for soccer. At least it sunk in a little bit more because if you would have asked me, you know, guy who runs into walls and gets punched in the head, well, what's soccer? Well, I mean, what, how can you have plays? What are you drawing up over there? For God's sakes, you're kicking the ball over here. The guys run over here. You kick it over here. But it's like, no, there's an actual flow of tree to all of this. <laughs> you know, there's actually like technique to all of this stuff that goes on. And I would think about that, too, when I was little. I would watch like hockey and it's like, you know, it's like you think about like playing hockey on Atari where it's like you, you shoot it over to this guy, to over to here, to over to here. It's like, what is that coach writing down on that uh, on that board? I mean, you're just throwing it around and trying to get it in there. I mean, but then you'll start learning about it and you see where guys go and you see, you know, how, you know, how the whole game develops and how plays work and, and, and get unwrapped and it gives you a better feel of it. And for me, it, 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 it translated over to soccer more where I don't understand. I still don't necessarily understand soccer as far as different sets and things like that go, but it like, I watch it differently now where I see things develop and you can see stuff guys out of the corner of your guy, a guy streaking down the field or something like that, where it's like, Oh, okay, I get it now. Or why does this guy always skate over to the left side of the ice before setting up this or that. It's like, it does give you far better perspective in the cameras. It does. And that's why I say, if anybody out there is even the the slightest bit of a hockey fan and has never gone go the speed of the game. I mean, it's just an amazing thing, amazing thing to watch where, you know, you have these large men on these tiny blades and I don't know how they move so fast backwards. I don't know how they do this stuff. I can't do this. And I'm just, I'm amazed every time out when I see these guys. The one thing that I've heard people say is also that why is the ice still white? doesn't have to be white. I mean, when we had black and white TV, it made sense. But, you know, it's like, look at, you know, look at NHL 94 or NHL 17, whatever is now. It's like, you know, the ice was like very slightly tinted blue so that you could see the puck better. It's like, yeah, why? It was, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> would, you know, would 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 the puck be easier to find if the if the ice weren't white? Like if it was very slightly tinted, would you be able to pick the puck up better? And I know they've done those games. I mean, I've never watched one, but I know that there are places where they've made the rink, you know, pink for breast cancer awareness or whatever. And so they've had, they've like played on pink ice. And I mean that's weird, but I mean it, you probably can see the puck better on a pink ice than you would on certainly on TV. Hey, it's got to be easier than watching a ball bounce across Boise State's blue field, you know, <laughs> you know, for for football when they when they do that. So yeah, I mean it's got to be a zillion times easier than something like that. But you know, I've heard people say that you know, like TV, you know. TV hates white, you know, because it because it blows everything out. And it's like it's well, true, yeah. 
Well, it's like, why is this game still played on a giant white field? That is a tremendous point. Even a little bit of the gray, yeah, and I, I, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. I mean, there's there's a reason you white balance your cameras. <laughs> you have to do that uh, before you start shooting. So I don't – that actually is a, another one of those good ideas. And there's another aesthetic thing too that I, I know it doesn't really matter, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of aesthetics when it, when it comes to the presentation of sports and the presentation of anything. You know, those – you know, those little details, it, it won't make or break anything, but it, it will definitely put something over the top, too, uh, when it's done. So I would be all for something like that or at least trying it. Well, that's the thing. It's like, you know, they have those, they always have those developmental camps in the fall, you know, when they try out these crazy new rules that they want to try. Or, you know, the, you know, the NHL could give, like, the ECHL, like, 50 grand and say, you know, for a week, play on a blue rink, see what happens. And, you know, and you know, who really cares about the ECHL in the grand scheme of things? But, you know, you can try it out. You know, they try things out in the A all the time. You yeah. know, whether it's, you know, that three-on-three overtime or certain kinds of penalties that they're calling or not calling or changing the lines or the trapezoid or – that. I've, I know I read some article where they were talking about, like, all the changes they want to make to baseball, these, these tinkering things. And they said it's funny how there are certain sports where tick, where nobody cares about the tinkering. Like, the, the NFL tinkers every year with stuff, and nobody minds. Well, yeah, they'll they'll bitch or they'll moan, but they'll deal with it. You know, that whatever it is that they, whether it's yeah kickoffs or whatever it is, it's like, well, we'll at least give it a shot in the, and see what happens with it. They're more because, open to it by far. You know, because you know nobody cares, nobody really cares about football records. You know what I mean? Generally speaking, as opposed to say like baseball and hockey. Oh yeah, I mean base baseball ones are the the hardest, and I think hockey fans because of. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a blood rain that I think flows through people there where, yeah, those there are certain numbers that absolutely matter. You're damn right. But, like, you know, okay, yes, in baseball, like, we've raised the mound and lowered the mound, and the fields are all different or whatever. But, you know, it's like every a couple times a year, somebody in the NHL, like in the wider NHL media, will say, well, if we want to increase scoring, why don't we just change the size of the net? And you're like, these nets have been the same size for like 150 years. <laughs> and, you know, while it's true, and there's also no guarantee that that would work, but it's like, you know, what, what kind of tinkering can you do to increase scoring without sort of like drastically, you know, what's tinkering and what's fundamental change? It's like, can you, can you take away the blue line? You know what I mean? Can you like, and that's always been a popular one, and I don't think you can do that. But, like, I remember, like, because Brodeur, who I hate it, obviously, uh, would always be, you know, at the forefront of being against this. But it's like you got to, to me, either make the the nets bigger because these men that are playing goalie are bigger than ever before, and they are so much more padded than ever before too. And I remember they would always talk about, we got to open up the play and we got to do this and we need to make it more Euro. And it's like, well, you still have, in my opinion, the best skilled hockey players on the planet playing the national hockey league. I I think if you narrow down a little bit of, of some, you know, especially again, as the, the pads got bigger and the men got bigger that play the net, 
maybe that's actually the option you should think about going with. And again, this is something that can be taken care of in one of the minor leagues in the exhibition season. Because there's another thing the NFL does better than anybody is do some shit during the uh, the preseason that they have no intention on doing this year. You know, we'll see how it goes. We might do it next year. We'll talk about it in competition committee, you know, sort of stuff. So I don't know how open the NHL is to doing stuff like that, but it was like the fact that that never seemed to actually get off the ground and go anywhere was like, oh, okay. I mean, it was to me, that one doesn't seem like it's insane or anything like that. It doesn't change the game. It just makes it a little bit tougher on the goalie. And I'm sure there's always somebody out there that goes, you know, you have the goalie that's, you know, who was the, who was the old Ranger backup that was like 6'10", the big Swedish kid? Brain lock on his name now. I forget where he ended up going. But it's like, you know, you always have a guy like him that you can shoot it right through his legs anyway, no matter how big he is and all that stuff. But, you know, I think you know, when it comes to the top tier of goalies, I mean, how do you make it a little bit tougher on him? How do you increase the scoring opportunities? To me, that was one of the easiest ways to do it. And they just they, they never seemed to be interest. I think I could just want to – it's sort of like baseball. It's like, one, you have traditionalists, and two, you have people who love to complain. Oh, yeah. And so, so, and if you need to get a consensus on something, you're probably not going to get it. No, and a traditionalist, too, and they're, you know, especially the biggest ones with baseball, too. We're seeing that with the intentional walk rule. And, you know, there is a level of stupidity to that because, you know, you do have a play where things happen. You know, if, if the ball, if somebody is distracted and, you know, the ball goes flying over the catcher or the catcher misses it or something like that. I mean, there are things that could happen there. But, you know, there is the tough part about having a sport, too, that is a, you know, where you have so many hardcores is they, they get loud, you know, <laughs> and they, they are passionate about it. Well, I was going to say, bring, to bring it full circle, it's like, well, we, like we said, crazy, crazy fans, you know, shortened Ivan Koloff's title reign. So, you know, and that... You know, we certainly don't have those kind of crazy fans, but it's like, you know, what happens when the fans don't accept your baby face year after year after year and you continually shove them down your throat? What are you supposed to do? If you're if you're cra- if you're a crazy man like Vince, you just keep going until until they give in. I, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, you just keep calling them the big dog then, you know, <laughs> although I guess, hey, who knows? Maybe he can get all uh, maybe he's got all the excitement behind the brawn now. <laughs> I'm sure I'm I'm sure uh, I'm sure the fans will easily embrace Roman if he fights the Undertaker at WrestleMania because you know nobody will cheer for the Undertaker at WrestleMania. Oh my god, it's like AJ and Shane Shane McMahon. It's like how are you gonna, really this is how you're going to play this thing? <laughs> it's not going to be good for uh, for Shane's ego, I wouldn't think. Uh, less said about less said about the current product the better, I guess. We're <laughs> we're better off we're better off talking about stuff from 1982. I like being an old dude. Oh, I like it. <laughs> I get to get to see all of it. I get to, to shake my fist at the kids and, and tell Adam to, to get the hell off my lawn. But to, to... <laughs> so I, I like where I grew up. I'm, I'm starting to, to feel that more and more as uh, as I get a little bit older. I'm, I'm not bitter at all. I'm completely content. <laughs> well, people can, of course, hear you every day, almost every day on Wrestling Observer Live. Every day, man, every single day, 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. live Eastern time through the Sports Byline Broadcast Network, uh, which includes cable radio network, uh, terrestrial affiliates all over the country. 
Um, as well as just on the website, WrestlingObserver.com. You can go there, too, check it out, listen through TuneIn. If you happen to be overseas and listening to me right now, the uh, American Forces replay airs at 1 a.m. GMT. Uh, every single day they just came on board. They used to play these Saturday and Sunday shows, and they are on board now every day uh, at, at the 1 a.m. Uh, GMT uh, replaying of that, so no matter where you are in the world, that's when it's going to come on there. Uh, Saturdays is usually a replay day. I did a live one last week because Ivan and, and everything is a, as we tape this, it was last week uh, that we do that one. Uh, Saturdays, 1 p.m. Eastern time. That one also replays at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And then the Mothership Sundays, uh, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, through all the same means that I just mentioned, as well as the Sirius XM Rush Channel 93 Oftentimes, because of sports, depending on uh, live sports, depending on what radio version that you have, uh, you may have to uh, go and check it out on the app. If there's some live pay-by-play that is taking place on 93 at that time, we are always available on the SiriusXM Rush Channel 93 app, as well as the rest of their programming that will come on and, and that may be preemptive, uh, uh, preempted on the radio that you have. But uh, you can check me out there on the WrestlingObserver.com, uh, WrestlingObserver.com website with adam summers doing the adam and mike big audio nightmare every once in a while uh dave Meltzer and i uh, hopefully getting back on the horse here real soon for sin lamente uh as well as many other random places that i'll appear because i just like talking about wrestling and stuff cool and you guys i assume are cranking up for wrestlemania season oh yeah big time we just had the big 399 sale at the at the website so if you got a, a hold of that and again once you once you get a copy of the Observer this week, uh, yeah, you'll know it's uh, of what the the real deal is. All these radio shows, all this you know good stuff that's available on the website, Allen for Life, and you know Josh Nason does some really smart, good interviews with a lot of guys in MMA and a lot of guys who used to cover wrestling back in the day uh, that that got involved in MMA or were big fans. You know, it's interesting to hear their perspective. We got a basically a show for everything we've got writing for everything with dr lucha steve sims and the figure four weekly and ellen for life and just there's just so much stuff and yeah we are full bore going into wrestlemania season one of the the biggest weeks on our website by far because it's one of the biggest weeks in in pro wrestling so all of your uh, big surprises and everything that's gonna to, to happen there and what could shake out of it as well too you know, keep, keep an eyeball on WrestlingObserver.com and, you know, give it a try. It's ten ninety nine a month, and you get a ton for that. You get a ton in the archives for that. And if you don't think it's worth it, uh, contact Brian Alvarez, and I bet you he'll make it whole with you if you don't think that what you're getting is going to be worth the money. But I honestly believe, and, you know, we, we all take hits. There's all things, you know, people may like this site more than the other or something like that, but none of them I don't believe could exist without what we do at WrestlingObserver.com. And I should say that Dr. Lucio should be on here in a week or two uh, to preview Dos Leyendes because we're going to look back at the Atlantis-Viano 3 match, which is still the only Lucha match to ever win Observer Match of the Year. True. So, yeah, they are honoring Viano 3 this year, and so Dr. Lucha is going to talk about that match and the feud and the build-up and all that kind of stuff, plus... Probably not, hopefully not as much on the actual Dos Leyendas show itself, which could very well have the worst Lucha main event in CML this year. Coincidentally coming, as we are taping Saturday night, a day after the, arguably the best Lucha match of the year, 
which was the finals of the Parejas Uncreables tournament, uh, which we will put a link on in the show notes, which was Ultima Guerrero and Valiente versus Volador and Cavanario, and that was a great, great match with, I would say, a surprising finish. Um, Cubs fan posted it last night, and so if you look at the bottom of the post uh, for this, you'll be able to watch it too. So... Uh, thanks again, Mike. I'm sorry we always seem to have you on for for tragic circumstances, but I think it's always good to to give these people their proper due. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, any time that I can be on and that you would like me on and that people would want me on, uh, I will absolutely come on because I always love doing this with you. I love you know one. It's nice when you talk to another hockey fan. Well, it was a great part about hockey fans too, especially in like areas like this. And it's a little bit different because you're a little bit more up towards Philadelphia. But it's like you know, you know, if you're in the South and you find another hockey fan, <laughs> or in the Southeast or the Southwest, really any part of the South, you know, cut it in half and go south of St. Louis down to the ground, and you find another hockey fan, it's like man, high fives all around. <laughs> so I love talking with you uh, about that as well as obviously. Um, old wrestling and older wrestling and how it relates to today, because, you know, there's a, there's a balance there to be had and there's a lot of stuff to learn from the past. And it's just still fun to talk about a lot of that sort of stuff. I like history and uh, I certainly like uh, a lot of what I grew up with and and wish some of it was still around. So to to go back and relive it a little bit, even when it's in a uh, tragic time like this, when we've lost so many people is still, still pretty damn cool. Thanks Mike. And we will talk to everybody next time.